Welcome to the Modern Lawyer Podcast. My name is Anand Upadhyay, and thanks for joining us. I'm honored to share our conversation with David Wilkins, a law professor at Harvard Law School and the faculty director of the Center on the Legal Profession. I recently had the opportunity to present to Professor Wilkins' class at Harvard Law School titled The Legal Profession, where I shared my thoughts on technology's impact on the future of legal jobs. Afterwards, I had the chance to sit down with Professor Wilkins to talk about how Richard Nixon affected his legal career, three key forces affecting the legal industry in the future, and how he educates students on the realities of legal practice. As it turns out, it's not as glamorous as Perry Mason. I hope you enjoy our conversation. Professor Wilkins, thank you so much for joining us on the Modern Lawyer Podcast. Thank you, Anna. It's a pleasure to be here. So, uh, Professor, we're here at the Center on the Legal Profession at Harvard Law School, and I would love to, for you to just introduce yourself at first. Now, there's a lot of different angles this interview could take. Obviously, you are a Harvard Law School professor. You are a former Supreme Court clerk for uh, Justice Thurgood Marshall. There's any number of things that we can ask you about. As you know, as we've discussed, uh, our listeners here on the Modern Lawyer Podcast are really interested in rapid change in the legal profession, and that is something that you really study and focus on here at the Center on the, on the Legal Profession. So I'd love for you to give us your background. How did you get to this place in your career with this level of interest and depth of interest in where the legal profession is going? So when people ask me this question, I often say, uh, only half-jokingly, that uh, I owe my career to Richard Nixon. Uh, now, usually we're speaking here in the midst of an impeachment inquiry going on, so this is particularly relevant. But for those uh, who are as old as I am and remember the Nixon impeachment, uh, you may remember that Richard Nixon, uh, not only did Richard Nixon resign, but that the Attorney General of the United States went to jail. Do not pass go, do not collect $200. The Council of the President went to jail. Many, many high-ranking administrative officials of the Nixon administration who were lawyers went to jail. Uh, Lewis Powell, who at the time was the president of the ABA, uh, thought this was a, sort of a disgraceful uh, set of affairs, and he went about trying to think how we could prevent this from ever happening again. And what he came up with was a requirement that every law student take two credits worth of legal ethics. Because obviously, if you took two credits worth of legal ethics, you could never do anything that would allow you to go to jail. Let's pass on whether that was right or not, but it was for me a terrific thing because it meant that law schools had to find people to teach legal ethics. So I graduated from Harvard Law School in 1980. As you said, I was a law clerk for Judge Feinberg and Justice Marshall. And then I did what I had always thought I wanted to do when I went to law school, which is, roughly speaking, try to become the black Perry Mason. <laughs> so I grew up watching Perry Mason. My father was a solo practitioner. He loved Perry Mason, and we would watch it as a family together. Right, right. And 
I went to law school with the dream of being able to cross-examine somebody on the witness stand and have somebody in the audience stand up and confess, which if you watch Perry Mason, used to happen routinely. Every episode. Every Uh episode. So what did I do? After I clerked for Justice Marshall, I went to join a small litigation uh, firm. And when I say a small litigation firm, my students think, 50, 60. No, I was like the 10, el- I was the 11th yes. lawyer uh, in a little litigation firm in Washington, D.C. that did all sorts of different kinds of trial work. It was really a trial lawyer's firm. And I did that for four years. And two things became apparent. One is that I was never going to get somebody to stand up in the audience and confess. And second, that actually mostly even trial lawyers, what they do is not try cases, but they argue with people about things like whose client is going to be deposed first and what documents have to be turned over. And I actually found that a lot less interesting and rewarding than I had anticipated. It's not all law and order. It's not all Perry Mason. Law and order is after after my time. It's not all Perry Mason. So around this time, which is around 1984, I think, a uh, mentor of mine at Harvard Law School, uh, who had actually I'd known since Harvard College, uh, named Jim Vorenberg, became the dean at Harvard. And Jim uh, was a really wonderful person who had always taken an interest in me. And he becomes dean I think actually maybe even in 1982. Now at this point, had you had any interest in going back to you know a- academia, academics? None at all? whatsoever. You wanted to be Perry Mason. Period. I right, thought right, right. that law teaching was for eggheads who used to sit around the editor's room at Harvard <laughs> Law School right. and argue about why they were smarter than Justice Holmes. Right. And I no longer I no. N- n- did not think that was that interesting and did not think I was smarter than Justice Holmes. And so therefore, I never thought about it at all. And so the second part of my story, if the first part is about trying to be the Black Perry Mason, the second part of my story is affirmative action in the truest sense of the word. Because Jim Vorenberg became the dean at Harvard Law School. And shortly thereafter, like in the last two years, next two years, Derek Bell, who had been the first black faculty member here, left to go become the dean at uh, University of, I forget, University of Vermont? No, I forget. He left to become the dean someplace else. And the second black faculty member, Dave Clyde Ferguson, died. And so suddenly there were no black faculty members here. And Jim Vorenberg. All across Harvard Law. uh, No black faculty members at Harvard Law School. And Jim Vorenberg, who had had a history of growing up in the civil rights movement, who had worked for Bobby Kennedy in the Justice Department, did not want to be presiding over a law school with no black faculty members. And so here's what he did. He went and he said, give me a list of all the black students who had gone not only to Harvard, but any other top law school who had the kind of credentials that might be uh, allow them to teach at a Harvard Law School faculty. And he started calling them up. So he called me up one day and he said, you should think about teaching. And I said, thank you very much, but that's for eggheads who like to sit around the editor's room thinking they're smarter than Justice Holmes. What a surreal no. call to get. 
And so then he called me up six months later, and then he called me up three months later, and eventually I said, I'll think about it. And I came. So then the question was, what was I going to teach? And it turned out that I really wasn't interested in being smarter than Justice Holmes and teaching all the kind of traditional things. The one thing that I thought Harvard Law School had prepared me the least well for was to actually be a lawyer. What did it mean to be a lawyer? And around this time, this is now 1986, all of my friends who had graduated with me in 1980 had gone on to do what I probably would have done, uh, which is to go work at a big law firm. And they were all calling me up and saying, this is not what people said it was. They said it was all about just doing good work and you didn't have to think about getting business and now everybody's talking about business and they're talking about how many hours you bill and they're talking about, you know, and it turns out, you know, there's no diversity in this place and all these things. Turns out that your work as a summer associate isn't necessarily what you're doing in your third or fourth year. Got it. It has nothing to do with it. Uh And so suddenly all these issues start coming up. Now, Richard Nixon. So they want somebody who would teach legal ethics. And I was delighted to teach legal ethics because it was about being a lawyer. And so I start out teaching a two-credit course in legal ethics. And then I quickly realize that that's not nearly enough time to talk about anything other than the rules, which frankly are not the most interesting thing about what's going on in the legal profession. So the next year I say, I'm going to teach a four credit course called the legal profession. And I begin to try to incorporate the things that my friends are telling me about what's going on in the world of legal practice. And And, and so that was your first role where you, you know, your job and your mandate was to look ahead and say, this is where the profession it, you know, has been, but this is where it's going, right? So buckle in three L's or two L's. Uh, you know, the, the crystal ball here tells me that we're going to an era of, you know, much tighter uh, business, billable hours, realization rates, right? Was that kind of early on? What you no, you're making it, you're making me seem much more smart and clairvoyant. <laughs> no, I was just trying to understand what was going on today. So, no one was talking about things like how do you make partner and is making partner getting easier or harder? Or no one was talking about what does diversity in the legal profession look like and why? And particularly anything other than gender. When I started, there was the beginnings of looking at gender in the legal profession, but nobody was looking at issues of race, for example, in the legal profession. So I would say in the first several years, I was just trying to understand what was actually happening and to talk and to build that into a classroom setting where we could talk about the things that my students were worrying about that we could actually talk about them in an academic setting. And uh, I was lucky because uh, I got introduced to a group of sociologists who were studying the legal profession and kind of the law and society tradition. 
And they were looking at things like the growth of large law firms and the, you know, Galan, Mark Galaner and Tom Pillay wrote this book called The Tournament of Lawyers in 1989 or 90. I think they published the article in 89. The book comes out in 91. And it's all about why are law firms growing? What's the theory behind law firm growth? Or Rick Abel writes his classic book called American Lawyers, which is all about what is the sociology of the legal profession look like, or Heinz and Laumann do their study of Chicago lawyers. Nobody was talking about any of these things in the context of law schools. Right. I just brought these concepts that people were talking about into thinking about law and then tried to apply some of what else I was learning about things like law and economics and critical legal studies to thinking what that might tell us about the legal profession. Um, in 1991, I become the director of what is now the Center on the Legal Profession. Why do I become the director? Because nobody really else wanted it, and they had a program, and they were looking around, and I was doing kind of work in this area. Presumably, you were on the crest of a wave, right? I mean, you, uh, <sighs> you know, by by a lot of different circumstances, you were in this position. And at the same time, I take it that a lot of other law schools at the same time said, hey, there's value in this, right? There's value in teaching students, you know, the actual uh, business of law or, you know, teaching students what the legal profession was made of, right? Because presumably they, a lot of them came to law school because they didn't know what else to do. They were pursuing a prestigious job that would impress their families and friends, whatever. But they didn't really know what they would be doing. They didn't understand a lot of the kind of macro forces, right? Was that, is, is that true? Or am I, again, getting, getting ahead of myself? You're getting ahead of yourself. In fact, no one was doing it. No, I was the no. only person in the country that was doing it <laughs> because law schools have never studied the legal profession. Right. You know, law school could prepare you to be either a Supreme Court justice or a uh, lawyer in 12th century chancery court. But actually, the modern legal profession was not a subject of study until very recently. Having said that, you're absolutely right. There were a tremendous number of students who came to law school. The reasons that Mostly I did. I was a little different because my father was a lawyer, but most people come to law school because can't do math, don't like the sight of blood, law school, okay? <laughs> and they are told that law school is all about these kinds of high concepts of legal reasoning and adjudication and Supreme Court analysis. And then they go out and work in the legal profession and they realize that they have no idea about what they're getting into. And because by the 1980s, you get the American lawyer, you get much more focus and attention on what's happening out there. 1991, you get the first recession. So in 1989, 90, people start getting laid off from law firms. Suddenly, People are now students, not the legal academy. Students are hungry for information about what their careers are going to be like. Right. And it was therefore, uh, I had a lot of interest from students. And the more I became to look at what was happening out there, the more interested I became. And so I taught civil procedure for the first 
oh gosh, 10 years or something like that, I was here. And finally, I went to the dean and I said, shouldn't the world's greatest law school, which is what the dean always calls Harvard Law School, have at least one person whose full-time interest was on what 90% of our students are going to do when they get out of law school? And it was, he thought for a minute, he said, yeah, that sounds like a good idea. I said, okay, that's what I want to do. He said, fine. But then he said, you have to go create what you're going to do yourself. And that's what I've been doing for the last 20, 25 years. And, and so was that the birth of the Center on the Legal Profession? Yeah. So I became, as I said, the director of this thing, which was at the time called the Program on the Legal Profession, which had been started by actually Jim Vordberg, who hired me and another professor, but they both moved on to do other things. No right. one was doing anything. So I became the director. And then for a long time, the Center on the Legal Profession was just me and my individual projects. But probably by, I guess this is now 1993, 90, early 1990s, I said, we need to try to build something uh, because this is, if we're going to do the kind of real research and analysis that we need, we need to have something that has some institutional life to it. Well, what were those early questions that you were trying to answer? I mean, when you when you kind of took the, the baton and ran with the center on the legal profession, then the program on the legal profession, what were you trying to get to the bottom of as, as an academic? I was interested in what legal careers looked like and how they were going to change. So I was interested literally and where do Harvard Law School students go after their first few years? And how is that different or similar than students from other kinds of law schools? So one of the early projects that I've been involved in, which I've now been involved in for well over 20 years, is called the After the JD Project. It's a nationwide longitudinal study of lawyer careers that is run out of the American Bar Foundation, which is probably the premier a kind of socio-legal research organization on the legal profession. I've been involved with that project since it began. Uh, we followed 4,000 lawyers from every law school in the country, from every in every state of the union throughout the first 12 years of their legal careers. I was interested in the economics of law firms and how they worked and how did law firms make money? Uh, how did that affect the careers? of people inside law firms, in particular, what did it mean for diversity? So I wrote a piece in 1996 called Why Are There So Few Black Lawyers in Corporate Law Firms? It was probably the first, I think it was the first piece ever written to try to understand why there had been so little racial progress on, on black lawyers in corporate law firms since Brown versus Board of Education. Uh, actually, sadly, in 2016, I gave a lot of talks called Why Are There Still So Few Black Lawyers in Corporate Law Firms? Because it still remains a problem. But I was very interested in diversity. Uh, I was very interested in what was happening to the, the norms of the legal profession. That is, what, did it, what difference does it mean that we went from a kind of noblesse oblige version of professionalism to, uh, you know, a 19th century version, maybe an 18th century version of professionalism to a 21st century 
actually 20th century when I first started thinking about it, late 20th century, very competitive business. And you, you've written about this, right? I think your term for this is anti-market, right? Mm -hmm. uh, you know, the fact that the legal profession is meant to be a profession of nobility and that kind of looks down or frowns upon profits and revenues and all of these things that are kind of the lifeblood of consultancies or mm -hmm. other kinds of business. How does that affect things? And, and uh, you know, I don't want to fast forward too much, but uh, have, you know, have we kind of uh, separated ourselves from <laughs> thinking that we are a profession purely made up of nobility? I mean, and we're going to get into this as well, but as the big four comes into law mm -hmm. and as other entities, you know, outsourcing, other, other factors uh, start kind of intervening here, are we starting to get in an environment where law is just a business and lawyers at law firms are effectively legal consultants? They're utilized and leveraged and billed out just like any other uh, professional services uh, you know, person might be. So, I mean, I think it's important to say law has always been a business, meaning sure. you, you, know, you sell your services through the market, you're a business. Right. But... It's also always been a certain kind of business. It's been a business that both has a sense of itself as being more than just a business. And quite frankly, those who depend on lawyers also look at them as being or expect them to be more than just a business. That is, it's, a, it's both a business and a profession. In the old days, it was easy to ignore the business aspects because basically uh, the market for legal services was incredibly closed and restricted. It was an oligopoly, particularly at the corporate level that I think you're probably most interested in. Um, there weren't that many lawyers. There were very few law firms. They didn't compete with each other very aggressively. They had gentlemanly norms like setting the starting salaries for all first-year associates around the table at the university club until the Justice Department sent them a letter and said that was probably an antitrust violation. They didn't poach each other's lawyers. All that worked very well in a world in which there weren't that many lawyers and they were had very defined turf to compete in. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, that all changed as you know the legal profession doubled in size between 1960 and 1985, and then it doubled again in size between 1985 and roughly speaking 2000 or the early 2000s. You know, it went from 250,000 lawyers to over a million lawyers. The number of law firms exploded. And all those gentlemanly norms were eroded by competition. And the question that you end with is a really interesting one, which is what is distinctive about lawyers and the legal profession today, uh, particularly if you take it out of the context of in-court litigation? Right. So lawyers still, roughly speaking, have a monopoly on standing up in court and arguing. And that's pretty much true all around the world. But if you ask yourself, what do transactional lawyers do? And what's different about transactional lawyers from consultants, <clears throat> accountants, strategic advisors, a whole bunch of other things who also try to tell companies how to put together complex financial arrangements and transactions sure, and due deals. Due diligence and M&A and all of these transactions, right? Yeah. I mean, there are, 
there are some aspects that uh, require some amount of knowledge about law and legal instruments and legal institutions, but there's a huge part about what transactional lawyers do that is about business. And that is why the competition between lawyers and other professionals for that turf has become much more intense over time. That, that makes sense. Uh, so I want to get to the question of this competition, right? What does this competition look like, uh, both with respect to the big four coming in, right? So different business models, but still, you know, human beings doing the work. And then also the rise of AI and, and you know, technology. Before we get to that, though, uh, I want to go back to uh, what you were saying on the center on the legal profession. You have been at the helm of this, this institution here at Harvard Law School for a long time. Um, we're, we're sitting here in 2019. Uh, based on the, the decades that you've worked on this, the decades of experience that, that you have uh, tracking where this is all going, what are the major forces at play right now in the legal profession that are going to inform its rapid change in the next 10 years or so? Uh, is it what we've already you know, started talking about, the big four technology, or are we kind of far off from that? I know uh, some of what you worked on is the impact of outsourcing on the global legal market and other kinds of trends. What are we working with as far as the big mega trends coming up? So I think most discussions about change in the legal profession are both uh, under and over-inclusive. They're under-inclusive because lawyers always put lawyers at the center of the universe. So they say things like, what's happening to the legal profession? Why is it changing? Well, here's a hint. The and I'm legal guilty of that. Yeah, absolutely guilty but the that. legal profession is changing because the world is changing. And the world is changing. You can do it in different ways, but I identify three big trends which are reshaping the world and therefore the legal profession. One is globalization of economic activity and the important movement of that activity from the traditional power centers of the North and West to the global South and East. Doesn't mean the U.S. is irrelevant, but nobody doubts the rise of China, the rise of India, increasing Southeast Asia, et cetera. The second is the incredible uh, increase in the speed and the sophistication of information technology. Moore's Law, computing speed doubling, what is it, every seven years. I, the example I often give for this is I used to, in 2017, I started every talk by holding up my iPhone. And I just said, you realize 10 years ago, there was no such thing as a smartphone. Now, who can imagine their life without a smartphone? Now, just ask yourself, what's going to be here 10 years from now that you can't imagine today, but you can't imagine living without? And I trust me, it'll be way more radical than a smartphone. So that's information technology. And then the third is what I call the blurring together of traditional categories of knowledge and organization. It's just a fancy way of saying things that we used to think of as being all separate and distinct are now melding and molding together as different kinds of occupations or businesses compete in different kinds of arenas. So, you know, take uh, public and private. 
I don't know, is GM a private company or a public company after the right. U.S. taxpayers dump billions of dollars into it, sure. let alone Sinopac or, or Petrobras or where you started, law and business? You know, we used to think of these things as two completely separate things. Now, nobody would say that. These three things are completely reshaping the entire global economy. Why wouldn't they reshape the legal profession? The yeah. law is a lagging, not a leading indicator of change, meaning it follows these broader trends. On the other hand, discussions about change of the legal profession are over-inclusive because a lot of people talk as if everything will or should change. But that's false, too. There's a reason why we call it the rule of law, okay? Going back to the fact that we're in the middle of an impeachment hearing or take your pick, take Brexit, take, you know, suspending parliament for, you know, Boris Johnson, take Duterte in the Philippines, just take wherever you want. There's a reason why people are saying, no, 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 we want the law to mean something, not just what the person in power says. And we don't just want oh, here's the rule of law, and oops, there was a glitch, so let's have a patch, and let's have law, rule of law 2.1, and then we'll fix it down the line, and then, no. So, predictability, stability, uh, individual rights, those things have to mean something. As presumably lawyers in this framework are supposed to be the torchbearers for this, kind of the, the vanguard of a lot of these, these uh, elements of stability and individual rights, right? I mean, am I... Am I viewing lawyers as, as you know, too much like a, a knight or something as opposed to a business person? Well, I think they're both. That's why being a lawyer is such a fascinating and challenging profession is that, you know, listen, lawyers get monopoly over certain kinds of things. They swear to take a, they swear an oath. Every lawyer in the United States, you know, puts their hand on something and puts up their right hand and takes an oath. Uh and yes, lawyers have some important and special responsibilities to the legal framework and the legal system. Not exclusive. The law does not belong exclusively to lawyers, nor is it even more for the exclusive benefit of lawyers, which sometimes lawyers mistake. On the other hand, that has to be done in the context of a service that is delivered through the market and therefore is a business. And so rather than understanding the market and the profession as opposites, I've been arguing for a long time, we need to understand what market professionalism means. What does professionalism mean in the context of a market? So it's only to say that when we think about where the legal profession is going, we have to think about the interplay between the forces of change and the forces of continuity. And that's never going to be a static balance. It's always going to be a moving, fluid understanding of how to reconcile at any given moment these competing tensions. So I want to focus in now on the the last of those, those three, right? The first one was you know, rapid uh, improvement in information transfer. The next one was all you know globalization facing East, uh, you know Southeast Asia and East Asia, and and, and I also Africa. want to get in and Africa as well. That's exactly where I was going. Um, 
you know, arguably out of all of all of these uh, places, the the you know uh, the place that has the potential for the highest growth, right? I think mm -hmm. maybe maybe you know uh, making an argument uh, contrary to that is becoming increasingly difficult as it starts really picking up its pace. I want to focus in though uh, on a major change in the business of law that we're already seeing here, and I want to read to you a quote by uh, Richard Susskind, who you know the. The author of Tomorrow's Lawyers, the you know, author of many, many books on this topic, and I know a friend of yours as well. And he said the following: He said, uh, you know, speaking about the big four accounting firms entering the legal market, he said, "Quote: What's interesting about the big four is their commitment to new technology. They come to a market where they have no legacy to protect." So they are able to start with a blank sheet of paper. It seems to me self-evident that the big four will be hoping to emerge as market leaders in legal technology. Uh, what is your take on that? Uh, you know, the kind of combination of the first thing that you talked about in the third. And uh, what is the prognosis for the AMLAW 100 or 200 in the face of uh, the big four entering into the U.S. legal market and international kind of global legal market? So I've been stalking the big four now for several years, and I've written pretty extensively on this. And there's no doubt that Richard is right, that the big four are going to be, I shouldn't say, the big four are formidable players in the market for legal services. Uh, I think here's the thing that people need to understand is that the last time that they came to try to eat the legal profession, their model was to be just like law firms, only bigger. In fact, you can find dozens of right. quotes in which they say that. Uh, and then, you know, along came Starbucks Oxley, and we thought we drove a stake through their heart, and we banished them uh, to the Middle Kingdom, and we kicked them off the island, and we forgot about them. And we thought they went away. But au contraire. What they did was they went underground and then they went global. So the first thing to understand is everybody outside of the United States knows that they are already a formula, formidable uh, competitor in the market for legal services outside the United States, um, mostly in places where most law firms aren't. So we just talked about Africa. You know, how many law firms are in Africa in any serious way? A tiny number. The big four have been there in every African country. And to add legal is just to add a service line. They're already there. Um, the ABS, uh, you know, the UK Legal Services Act, all four of them are now ABS, have ABS status. And here's the key point. They no longer want to be like law firms, only bigger. They're coming now with a totally different model, uh, which I've been calling an integrated solutions model. It's even more than just a multidisciplinary model, which is what we used to think of it. Their model is how do we uh, provide integrated solutions to businesses about the global problems that they face. It's increasingly not a fee-for-service model. It's not a single service line model. It's an integrated solutions model, which <clears throat> the only uh, small amendment I'd make to Richard's point is technology is only one piece of it. We have actually tracked their technology partnerships, their 
vastly more extensive than anything that's happening uh, with any law firm, in part because they have a they're vastly bigger and they have a huge global scope. But technology is only one piece of it. It's project management, it's process management, it's integration uh, into uh, the client, it's outsourcing, it's a whole range of things to solve complex solutions to global clients. And uh, if people are interested in this, uh, they should subscribe to our digital magazine, The Practice, where we've written about this uh, extensively, as well as a bunch of uh, articles. I think this is the wave of the future. How would they find that digital magazine? How would they so it's on that? our website, the Center on the Legal Professions website. It's called The Practice. It comes out six times a year. Uh, we started this five years ago. Uh, we started it because, as I often say, in law... There's nothing between the Harvard Law Review, which frankly nobody reads, and that includes me and I write in the Harvard Law Review, <laughs> and the American Lawyer, which let's just say is not an in-depth publication. Uh, and there's nothing in between. Right. Whereas in business, you have the Harvard Business Review, you have The Economist, you have you know lots of other serious publications which take a combination of their own research, academic research, serious commentary, in-depth discussion, and put it in a form that can be read by busy professionals. That's the goal of the practice. I think we do a very good job of it. It's a totally digital uh, publication, and each issue takes a uh, something that's going on in the legal profession, starting with a piece of academic research, sometimes by us, sometimes by other people. And then we build out a set of supporting stories. We look at what's uh, in the news about it. We talk about case studies. So we had a whole issue on the reemergence of the big four of the market for legal services. Uh, and they are, so let's just be clear. This goes back to your integrate, again, what I mean by an integrated solutions model or a blurring of boundaries. So, you know, around the world, in many places, they are literally practicing law, but they're also doing a whole lot of other things. So, for example, all four of the big four have set up these uh, consulting practices around the world, but here in the United States, which are focusing on uh, helping corporate clients become more efficient in running their internal legal services. Well, that what's a big part of that? It's managing law firms right. and it's managing providers. Uh, they are integrating, they're building technology partnerships with companies. Uh, they are uh, consulting with US, PwC has a law firm in New York that consults with U.S. companies about their international expansion. Now, you don't know any American law firm that does that, right? <laughs> right. So the idea that regulation is going to stop this in any serious way, I think law firms are deluding themselves. Is it inevitable way. that in, you know, whatever, however, however long you want to call it, 10 years, 15 years, 20 years, that you know the PWCs of this world and the Deloittes of this world are going to be really uh, competing for the business of the AMLAW 10, AMLAW 50, AMLAW 100. I mean, are we already? Are, are we? Uh, is it a foregone conclusion that we're going to 
get there. So they're already competing for parts of the business. Right. Listen, I, I think, again, they're, they're much smarter about what it is that they can do well and how to do it. So are they ever going to replace Wachtell as the lead on a fancy deal? No. But... Uh, listen, I've interviewed all the top, all the heads of all the four, uh, big four. And one of them said, and I think this has actually been published now. He said, you know, law firms constantly talk about they want the bet the company case, the bet the company case. He said, you know what? We want the run the company case. In other words, we want to be in there with our clients on everything they need. And law firms have abandoned many of the areas of practice, like take employment law. Right. Well, they think of employment law as a, like a loss leader. But actually, if you think about putting employment lawyers together with human resource consultants, talent management, executive search, you know, professional development, design thinking, agile workforces, oh no, that's actually very big. And well, it could be extremely lucrative as well. Of course it could be very lucrative, especially if you're not billing it on a straight hourly basis. Yes. And instead you're billing it on a on an integrated solution basis. Take I can tell you for a fact that one of the biggest mergers in the world uh, was the Bayer Monsanto merger that happened a couple of years ago, last year or the year before. Yeah, all the top merger stuff was done by, you know, Linklater's, Wachtell. Okay, but after the deal was done, there was a huge question of post-merger integration of the post-merger legal integration around every dimension of internal practices, contracting, legal integration. Guess who's doing that? I'd imagine PwC. PwC. Right. Right. No law. Every law firm wanted to do it. It's millions of dollars of business a month. Right. No law firm was in a position to do it. You know, I, I spoke to uh, Jason Barnwell, who's in uh, AGC at Microsoft, and you know, he has this comment on the billable hour being a shackle on innovation, and, and he's spoken a fair amount on how uh, you know law is the only profession. Uh, and law firms are the only institutions where you do the same work year over year for for often the same clients, and the expectation is that your bill will increase. Next right, week, right. You get that dreaded uh, letter at the end of every year that says, "Hey, you know, our rates have gone up, you know, blended rate by thirty five dollars, hundred dollars, whatever it may be." And we're in an era now where your rates should be going down. You should be getting more proficient year after year. And and according to him, that's something that the big four is extremely good at, right? Operationalizing things, productizing things. Um, is there a future for that in law firms or are law firms just ill-equipped to get there and do that? I think the best, many law firms are working hard to try to get there. Listen, again, there's always going to be a niche for the top and domain right. specialists, right. okay? You know, uh, when it's a, you know, it's a $50 billion merger, 
Or alternatively, you know, the CEO is being perp walked out the back by the U.S. attorney for the Southern District of New York. That, yeah, no amount of the shareholders' money is too much to pay for the top end legal talent. But that top end is a relatively small part of the market. This is Clayton Christensen's disruptive innovation theory. Yes. And I often say that being a top-tier New York firm in which all you do is, quote, high-end bet-the-company work, uh, which, by the way, I tell every general counsel you should stop using that phrase, because if you bet the company more than once, you should be fired, okay? <laughs> People should not be betting the company, but right. we get the idea. Uh-huh. That is a little bit like a game of musical chairs in which every so often, one chair gets removed. So if you're Dewey Valentine, for 150 years, you think you're just like Cravath and Sullivan and Cromwell and, you know, the top-tier New York firms, Thomas E. Dewey, governor of New York, blah, blah, blah. Right. And then one day you look up and you realize, oops, no, we are not just like them. And then you marry down to LaBeouf, and then you do a bunch of dumb things like borrow $5 million and start paying out guarantees, and suddenly you're gone. Right. Now, okay, that's an extreme story. But there's a couple like it. Listen, we are the most fragmented trillion-dollar business in the world. What do you mean by that? Well, no law firm in the world has more than 1% of the market. Nobody has even close to 1% of the market. Name me another business that's of this important. You, consulting, investment banking, architecture and engineering, accounting, you name it, has all undergone tremendous consolidation. We see this already happening. The number of mergers of law firms has gone up and up and up. Um, you know, I mean, Denton's Dashung has, I don't know, 4,000 lawyers. I mean, some of these are fake and, you know, you can argue about Varane's and this and that. But the fact of the matter is we're going to see tremendous consolidation. Uh, conflicts are going to stop it a little, but we've already begun to see ways of getting around conflicts. So that consolidation is also going to drive a demand for standardization, product uh, productization, all the things that you talked about, and a demand for capital, which is why what's happening in the UK is so important. Okay, the 25th, you were sitting in the class with me when uh, uh, Dan, yeah, Dan Katz said, you know, the 25th law firm, the largest law firm in the UK just declared ABS and just taking outside capital. It sold 20% of itself. Right. It's only a matter of time before other law firms do this. Already law firms are doing various forms of debt that look more like equity. I think, you know, we're not going to see law firms on the big board for very much, but we're certainly going to see multidisciplinary partnerships. In fact, the U.S., here's a prediction, all right? Yes. Within five years, the U.S. is going to, MDPs are going to be legal. It, they almost bubbled to the top at Ethics 2020. There are some states already experimenting with it. All you need is New York, California, and Texas. And by the way, 
if one of the big UK law firms becomes an MDP and they are practicing law in the United States, you're going to see... Floodgates open. Absolutely. Yeah. <clears throat> so outside capital, you're going to see because people want to make... You're already seeing it in joint ventures and investments. The UK law firms are beginning to invest much more heavily in technology and other forms of innovation. So people are going to have to keep up. And so this very fragmented industry at some point is going to consolidate. You've, you've described some aspects of how a consolidated industry might look. How, I mean, what do you foresee uh, with respect to the steps of consolidation in this industry? Will this be led by the big four? Will it be led by, you know, a Kirkland and Ellis? I mean, will it be led by private equity? I mean, who's going to push this and how might it look? All of the above. Yeah. But you're going to, it's not, we're not going to have a big four in law uh, because you're simultaneously seeing consolidation, but you're also seeing people, uh, technology will allow smaller combinations and in fact, freelance ad hoc gig combinations to be able to compete for sophisticated work. So my uh, next door neighbor is the uh, is a senior uh, founder at Highland Capital. They do early stage venture capital. And I had him uh, come to talk to my class because I thought he was going to talk about how do you evaluate technology? And he said, I'm happy to talk about that, but what I really want to talk about is the future of work. And when he talks about the future of work, one way in which work is moving is towards the gig economy. And one of the ventures that he's backing is called Catalent, which is the fastest growing, it's the fastest growing consulting firm in the world. And it is essentially a platform where people can come together, where people put projects up to bid. Interesting. And yeah. people can come together either as a team already or the client can put together a team from different expertises and they can work on a project by project basis. Uber for consulting. I mean, not yeah. to denigrate yes. them. No, no, that's not, no denigration at all. Yeah. <laughs> Uber's been quite they successful have. as a model. So you're going to see that at the same time you're also going to see bigger and bigger and more integrated uh, firms that can compete with what the big four are offering. And then you're going to see the technology companies moving into this space. You're already seeing people like Oracle and Thomson Reuters yes. and Microsoft moving into this space. Or as you said, quite accurately in my class, look at Clio. You're going to see platform-based models. So I think it's not going to be a single model. There's not going to be the firm, if you will, or, or anything that even looks like the big four. And it could be that the big four themselves are now going to be in a process after consolidating that there's going to be a, you know, most of them spun off their consulting units only to grow them back in a different way. A lot of those consulting units then merged with technology companies. So the point is there are going to be multiple players on multiple platforms. And finally, you mentioned VCs. 
Well, the biggest VCs we have are going to move into the litigation funding space. Right. And the litigation funders are basically becoming like quant traders who are going to be leveraging technology in order to perfect a business model of figuring out you know, how to use predictive analytics, machine learning, a whole bunch of things to better figure out how to invest in litigation. You've spoken a bit about the great unbundling, and this kind of seems like, if, I, if I've got it right, uh, one of uh, you know one of the, the potential great unbundlings that we're going to see, right? Uh, we're going to see maybe a the law firm of the future that doesn't employ any lawyers. We're going to see individual cases being invested in as opposed to individual businesses. Um, how do you, you know, what is your take on the great unbundling? When you use the term, what do you mean by it? So there's been a lot of talk about disaggregation and unbundling, and that's clearly going on. Uh, so in other words, people are saying, look, we've seen a huge increase in, uh, or decrease, I should say, in what the economists would call information asymmetry between buyers and sellers. Just a fancy way of saying buyers are way more sophisticated about what they want, when they want it, how they want it. Yes. And they can tell sellers to take things that the seller used to have all bundled together for the benefit of the seller and to unbundle it and rearrange it across an increasingly global supply chain. This has happened all over the economy. It's happening to legal services. So clients are saying, no, that's not litigation or it's not transactional work. That's electronic discovery, motion practice, expert witness finding, expert witness preparation, brief writing, trial motion practice, exhibit. And then I'm going to take those things and I'm going to send them to the provider that can provide the best value at producing that service to me. In a by-task, by-category way. Right. Except that's only the first step. And this is what people have focused on, and this is what has lots been going on. But once you unbundle enough, you realize that you have two other problems, both of which are more difficult to solve, I think, than unbundling. The second problem is coordination. How do you get all these different players to work together? Right. That's what law firms, full service law firms used to say, we solve your coordination problem because we do everything and then we do the internal coordination. Coordination. What are you doing when you're coordinating across different organizations, different uh, kinds of organizations, different time zones, different uh, incentive structures? That's hard enough. But the final problem is the toughest, which is, uh, reintegration. I call it the Humpty Dumpty problem, right? right? It's easy to push Humpty off the wall. And as I say, he was pushed off the wall. He didn't just fall. But all the king's horses and all the king's men couldn't put Humpty together again. It's a lot harder to reintegrate back into something. And you better think about the reintegration before you take it apart. So the question is, what are the optimal number of pieces to break a task into that both gets you efficiency in getting each piece done, but also minimizes coordination costs and actually leads to a reintegration that solves your problem. Those are not easy things. Right. And, and 
I, I assume that a lot of these forces in the market are meant to optimize these things, right? The rise of the big four is meant to try to optimize this problem on behalf of the client. Well, so the big four says we will. So first, so lots of people are competing for this. I always say people are competing to be the quarterback. Everybody knows you need different kinds of expertise on the team. But the person who gets paid the most money is Tom Brady. <laughs> right. Okay. Meaning if you're the quarterback that puts all the pieces back together and that calls the shots about the ultimate, that's right. the value proposition. So there's some competing people, general counsels. This is what general counsels have claimed they can do. Turns out, though, general counsel are a fixed cost within an increasingly cost-conscious, conscious environment. So there's pressure on the general counsels to actually get help doing this. Now, the smartest general counsels are trying to turn their operations from being cost centers into yes. profit centers. But that's a whole other discussion. Uh -huh. But the big four come along and say, no, no, we can do that because we have all this multidisciplinary expertise. We have global reach. We can help you find the right providers. We can hire everybody. Uh, but of course, general counsels are somewhat leery of this because does that displace the general counsel? Is the DXC United Lex model, is that good for general counsels or bad for general counsels? If suddenly you have a lot of the operation outsourced to United Lex or PwC or somebody else. Interesting dynamic. Um, the domain expertise. How much do you think you can get all the best domain expertise in an, in a one-stop shop? You could buy all your clothes at Walmart and all your groceries and your, get your tires and you could, you know, but do you? Most people don't because most people actually think, well, yeah, but for this, I want the specialist. And okay, so there's a big fight going on, right? Yes about who's going to be in the position of figuring out what level of coordination and integration is best versus customization, specialization, expertise. Professor Wilkins, look, I could talk to you about this for another hour or two. I mean, the <laughs> amount of content that you provided us and the amount of, of issues and topics that we could consider in more depth are myriad. We could keep going on about this. Professor Wilkins, it's been an honor. It was an honor to present at your class yesterday. It's an honor to be here in your office. Thank you so much for joining us on the Modern Lawyer Podcast. I think our listeners will find this immensely interesting. Well, thank you very much, Anand. It was great to uh, have this discussion. And if people do want to find out more about what we're doing at the center, go check our, out our website. Just Google Harvard Law School Center on the Legal Profession. And we have stuff on all the research projects that we're doing, and we'd love to engage with your listeners on this. Thank you, Professor. Thanks for listening to the Modern Lawyer Podcast. We always love hearing from you, and we highly value your feedback. Reach out to me at onin at casetext.com, tweet at us with the hashtag modernlawyer, and check us out at modernlawyerpodcast.com. We hope you join us for our next episode. Special thanks to the Case Text team, especially our producer extraordinaire, Abby Hadidian. See you soon.